Would you please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2? Esther chapter 2 for the last time. And this evening we'll consider verses 19 through 23. Esther chapter 2, verses 19 through to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. The title for the message this evening is, It's Not Fair. Let's open in word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this wonderful night you've given to us. I thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we can come and meet free of persecution in this country. Father, we thank you for that. I thank you for the privilege that I do have to open your word, Lord, and I do pray you would um, give me wisdom and guidance, Father, and you would grant us the precious gift of illumination this evening. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase, it's not fair, is one that we tend to learn at a very young age. And it's three words that get a real workout throughout our entire life, particularly in our childhood. I'm sure the parents in this room have probably heard this phrase today, and if not today, sometime during this week by their children. And I'm sure those of us who aren't parents can remember quite clearly that we ourselves have used this phrase a lot. This is a part of our vocabulary that we learn from a very young age. I know this was very common within the Fisher household. Mum, it's not fair. I never get to do that, but Megan always does. Oh, Mum, it's not fair. Brendan always gets to sit in the front, and so on. This attitude of it's not fair is generally rooted in a heart attitude of selfishness. But there are times in our lives when really it does not seem fair. We have done something very noble, yet we have not received credit for it. We have worked the hardest out of all of our colleagues, yet we do not get the promotion. You know, there are many other scenarios. I'm sure we can think of examples within our own lives when something has occurred or has not occurred and it really does not seem fair. Well, just like the vast majority of life's issues, the Bible addresses this particular issue. And it is this issue of it's not fair that we will consider this evening in our next instalment of the Esther narrative. You know, perhaps just when we thought this story might start to get a little bit boring, Esther has now been crowned as queen. There's another twist. There is now a conspiracy to murder. And in considering this conspiracy to murder, which will lead us to examine our it's not fair situations, I wish to break this part of the story up under four headings. These headings being the incidents surrounding the conspiracy, the individuals involved in the conspiracy, the intervening of the conspiracy, and the inquisition into 
to conspiracy. So firstly this evening, let's consider the incidents surrounding the conspiracy. We find this in verses 19 and 20. Now these verses, these are a separate scene to what we have been studying. In the previous verses, we have seen the crowning of Esther. These particular events occur sometime after the crowning. This is a rather short scene, but it is a scene that is pivotal in regards to the future events in this narrative. In verse 19, we're given some information that sets the scene for when this conspiracy theory was hatched. We are told this occurred when the virgins were gathered together for a second time. So this reveals to us the exact timing of this particular event that is about to be unfolded before our eyes. What we need to determine is what does this phrase refer to? When the text informs us of the virgins gathering for a second time, what is this a reference to? And there are many explanations to explain this. You know, I'll give you a few. Perhaps this was when the women, when they were gathered, they moved into the second house. So they moved from the house of Haggai to the second house of Shehashgaz. That is one interpretation. But I don't think that is correct because in chapter 2 verse 14, it seems to be as soon as the lady would come into the king, she would then go to the second house. So maybe this was a gathering of the other ladies and they were invited to the wedding banquet. So those who were not chosen were allowed to come to this celebration. Perhaps this was a late arrival of the virgins from distant lands. This is the second gathering. I think that's unlikely since there was a 12-month purification program. Some other scholars think this might be a farewell ceremony to the virgins who were not successful. They were released back to their families, to their previous lifestyles. But knowing the character of this man and the life of a concubine, I think this is highly unlikely. Now these are some of the popular suggestions and maybe they have some truth, but I think there is a better interpretation. In the Hebrew, with the word virgin, there is no definite article. So it reads virgins, not the virgins. And this is important to note, because I feel if it was the virgins, this would imply to the virgins that the text has already revealed, those that participated in the previous events. But since it is just virgins, it seems to be that Ahasuerus was collecting more women for his concubines. Though Ahasuerus had this beautiful queen, Esther, he still wanted more women. Now, one author stated his lust was not yet satisfied, and therefore being pleased with the former experiments, he decided another collection of virgins whom he might make his concubines. And this further highlights to us the diabolical character of this monarch and reminds us of the situation that Esther finds herself in. This is not some romantic fairy tale setting where she's in a castle with Prince Charming. This second gathering is the time when the conspiracy occurs and perhaps the event that explains the timing has much to do with the reasoning behind the conspiracy, which we will come back to. Verse 19 also reveals important information in regards to this conspiracy as to how it was going to unfold or unravel. 
We're told that Mordecai sat in the king's gate. And this small statement is of vital importance, both for the present and for the future of this narrative. The position on the king's gate was one of honour. It was one of authority. It was at the king's gate where the legal transactions would take place. Strategies would often be discussed and important meetings would be held. This ancient setting is equivalent to our modern day law courts. You know, perhaps we remember the story of Boaz. When Boaz wanted to be the kinsman redeemer, he had to come to the gate with the shoe in order to have this passed. So he came to the man at the gates in order to settle this legal matter. Archaeology in the 1970s actually uncovered this particular area of the King's Gate. This was the main entrance to the upper city in Shushan. It was located in the eastern wall. And this was a massive structure, 130 feet wide and 90 feet high. There were side rooms to the north and to the south of the main entrance where meetings and transactions took place. And quite often troops would also be located in these rooms. So this gives us a small glimpse of what it meant to sit on the king's gate. This was a very prestigious position. And it must have been a position of much significance and influence. For later in this narrative, the king is aware of this man Mordecai. And the king has no hesitation in promoting him to Haman's position, which was 2IC in the empire. So the king, I don't think, would advance this man knowing absolutely nothing about his abilities and capabilities. Whether Mordecai had worked his way to this position, or whether Esther had managed to secure him this position, we are uncertain. But what we do know, we can see once again, which is the repeating theme in this book, that God is in control. God has placed Mordecai in the right position at the right time in order to fulfill God's plan. Now these two verses present us with the historical setting for the forthcoming conspiracy. The author now having set the historical background, now moves on to explain the conspiracy. And this is what we see secondly, we see the individuals involved in the conspiracy. And we see this in verse 21. Verse 21 begins with the phrase, in those days. This is a reference back to the definition of time in verse 19. And we are again informed here about Mordecai's position. Now, the use of repetition is rather common in Esther, and I feel in this situation it enforces the important role that Mordecai plays, and it enforces the importance of Mordecai's position that he occupies. We have identified here two men, and their position is the king's chamberlain who kept the door. Now, this particular position was one of highest possible trust, These men were entrusted to guard the entrance of the king's sleeping chambers. They were to guard and protect the king when he was at his most vulnerable. The king placed much trust in these men. These two men are identified as Big Than and Teresh. It's been suggested that Big Than may well be Big Tha from Esther 1.10. He was a part of the group of the eunuchs that relayed the messages from Ahasuerus to Queen Vashti. You know, this may well be the case, and this certainly 
it puts a greater emphasis on this act of betrayal. This man was so close to the king. We have revealed to us that these two men were very wroth. They were angry and they were conspiring to kill the king. You know, the phrase that's used in verse 21, they sought to lay hands on the king. This is a polite way of saying they want to kill the king. They were so angry that they would stop at nothing but taking the king's life. The threat of assassination was very real for one of importance. In fact, Ahasuerus ended up being assassinating, assassinated, sorry, whether it's tonight or another time, I won't ruin the ending, but it does happen. And you know, and I get this picture with these people, this is, I've probably seen too many movies, but I picture these men with these well-groomed moustaches, hiding behind pillars, moving swiftly and silently in the dark, devising these wicked plans, plotting the downfall of the king. Now, how they intended On killing the king, we are not told. We cannot be certain. It has been suggested that maybe they plan to poison the king. You know, one of the more out there suggestions is that they plan to put this poisonous snake in the king's cup. And as he went to drink, the snake would strike him on the face and he would die. I don't think that is the case. But the most plausible suggestion is they intended to kill the king by the sword that was kept near his bedchamber. That seems to make the most sense with the position that they occupied. You know, when investigating a crime, it's always asked, what is the motive for committing this? And the same question must be asked, what was the motive of these two men? All our text tells us is they were very wroth. We are given no other reason. You know, many have been suggested. It may be because they were angry at how Vashti was dethroned. You know, perhaps it was because Esther did not come from one of the seven noble families. You know, maybe it was they were so angry at the crushing military defeats that the Persians had suffered to the Greeks. Or maybe it was because they were ropeable and furious with the gross immorality this ruler was engaged in. You know, they being the guards of his bedroom would have a better idea than anybody else at the terrible behaviour that was occurring. And this would seem to make sense as to why the second gathering of the virgins was mentioned. Maybe this was the straw that broke the camel's back for these two men. They were so close to the king and this just pushed them so far. This was what made them angry. But unfortunately, we cannot be certain as to the exact motive or the means, but I think our text conveys a very clear principle. The principle that unchecked anger will lead to murder. The first case of anger in the Bible results in the first murder in the Bible. These men conspired to kill the king, to kill their leader, because of unchecked wrath. And this highlights the need in our lives to deal with the anger within. For left unchecked and allowed to fester, who knows what ugly fruits it may produce. These two men had the desire to kill the king. They had the position to kill the king. But would this conspiracy come to fruition? Would the life of the king be taken? This leads us to our third point this evening. We see the intervening of the conspiracy. We see this in verse 
22. Now these two men had devised an evil plan. No doubt much effort and planning had gone into this conspiracy. No doubt these men were trying to keep this conspiracy on the quiet. If this got back to the king, there would definitely be death, but it would not be of the king. Our text informs us that this conspiracy was brought to the attention of Mordecai. Obviously, the position that he occupied meant that he was an obvious man to go to, to, um, to reveal this terrible plan. You know, how he came about finding out about this particular plan, the plan to murder the monarch, we are not told. You know, once again, there are many suggestions from the scholars, but the most plausible and reasonable, in my opinion, is that one of the slaves of the eunuchs betrayed them to Mordecai. He couldn't handle knowing and doing nothing to stop it. However, Mordecai found out we don't really need to be concerned. All we know is he did find out. And as I studied this, I had this verse come to my mind that was drummed into my head as a child that fits this situation perfectly. You know, Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And this was certainly the case with these eunuchs. They had these wicked intentions and they had got out. Their sin had found them out. And we too must remember this principle, that our sin will find us out. We may have that, that little dirty secret sin that we think nobody knows about, but the Bible tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. Confess and repent of that sin. And Mordecai at this time is faced with a decision. What is he going to do with the information that he was given? This king was a very wicked man. Perhaps Mordecai may have thought he should let this king get killed and maybe the next king would be better. You know how easy it would have been for this Jewish man under this pagan king not to care about this plan to kill the king. But credit must be given to Mordecai. He shows great character in the way he responds to this information. He shows great integrity and loyalty to the task he has been entrusted with. And he also practices the principle that the Apostle Peter would later spell out in his epistle that God wants his people to honour the king, honour those in leadership. The plan has been exposed just in time to the right man. And Mordecai responds immediately. Our text informs us that Mordecai makes this plan known to Esther. And I want to point out that the position that God had placed Mordecai in obviously meant he could keep in regular contact with Esther. And this is truly amazing, for not many would have this privilege. Not many would have the opportunity to speak to the Persian king, particularly with their strict culture and customs when it comes to this. And we also see that Mordecai and Esther obviously kept in regular communication. And this alertness and communication ended up making a difference that affected history, particularly Jewish history. And I want to point out here just as an aside, something that's very, sorry, revelant, that's still not right, for you and I. Notice that Mordecai, upon hearing this news, he didn't go and tell everybody. He didn't tell the world. He obviously took it seriously. 
And immediately he reported it to the person who it was about via Esther. And this is an important lesson for us to learn. When we hear something about someone, we would do well not to tell the world, not to gossip, but immediately take it to that person so we can be dealt with. Esther, upon being told, takes this news straight to the king. How the king would respond, we are not sure. I'm guessing that plans to murder the king would have been quite common, but nevertheless would be dealt with seriously, particularly when the king had it made known to him who was behind this conspiracy. Now, once again, we get a glimpse of the wonderful character of Esther. When she reports this to the king, she makes sure she gives credit to Mordecai. How easy it would have been for her to take all the credit for this, to take all the glory, saying that she uncovered this plan, that she had did it all. This would gain her much favour and much privilege with the king, yet she did what was right. She practised a simple yet wise and biblical principle, which is to give honour where honour is due. Proverbs 3.27 says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. And we too must practice this principle in our various relationships, whether that be with one's husband or wife, with one's children, with one's colleagues, whoever it may be, we, we must give honour where honour is due. But how often we neglect this because of our own envy and selfishness. You know, beloved, we would do well to learn from the example of Esther. And oh, how the Lord would bless abundantly in this situation from this simple principle being practiced. I also think we can learn a very valuable lesson from Mordecai in this situation. The king's life was on the line and he intervened. He heard of this plan and he responded immediately making sure the king's life was spared. And I can't help but to sense that this was a test or a practice run for a much greater task. As we'll see in the coming studies, a much greater conspiracy will be unveiled. The next conspiracy involves a whole nation, not just an individual. But before Mordecai could ever be used in this mighty way, he first had to prove himself in the smaller task. And that is still how God works today. We must be faithful in the lesser tasks before we can ever perform the greater tasks. Mordecai first had to save an individual before he could save a nation. And God too will give us small tasks that we must prove ourselves faithful in. We must not get impatient and think, I'm sick of these small tasks. I want to do something bigger, better and greater. But it is our job to be faithful with what God has entrusted us with, no matter how small that may be. And who knows what he may ask us to do next. Before we can rescue a nation, we first must learn to rescue an individual. This murderous conspiracy has been brought to the attention of the king. But how would the king respond And this is what we see fourthly and lastly, we see the inquisition into the conspiracy. We see this in verse 23. 
Now in verse 23, we actually see a rare occurrence in this narrative. Ahasuerus actually shows some quality leadership. Upon hearing these accusations, immediately he orders an inquisition. This process would investigate the facts that have been presented to him to indeed determine whether this was a genuine accusation. He didn't just fly off his handle like he's known to do and just kill these men instantly, but he ordered an investigation. What this particular investigation entailed, we are not informed. But I get the sense that this would be equivalent to a modern-day court hearing. Now, as a result of this inquisition, these men were found guilty of treason and they were punished immediately. The punishment for such a crime in this particular age, according to our text, is they were hung on a tree. This was a very public punishment. All would see this. And this type of punishment was meant to act as a deterrent for others so nobody else would, cut, would decide a similar act of treason. Now the particular description in our text seems to sound like a crucifixion, but that is not entirely accurate. This is actually describing impalement, which was the form that the, that the Persians used in execution. Now, Adam Clark describes this process like this, and this is a little bit graphic, so block your ears if you've got a weak stomach. It says, A pointed stake is set upright in the ground, and the culprit is taken, placed on the sharp point, and then pulled down by his legs till the stake passes through the body and comes out of the neck. The culprit lives a considerable time in excruciating agonies. This was a terrible, brutal way to be put to death. And this was meant to be a great deterrent for those hatching similar plans. This was the punishment that was dealt out. The last phrase of verse 23, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. This is an incredibly important phrase. It is vital for how this narrative ends up unfolding. This particular incident will play an important part in this drama. In fact, it's really a turning point later on in the book. Now, the king has these events all documented. This was a Persian custom. In fact, Xerxes was actually known to keep extremely precise records, particularly when it came to his battles. This custom of recording events in the life of the king has been confirmed by archaeology in all major empires. You know, in fact, we have the records of the kings of Israel in our Bible. It's the first and second book of Chronicles. So Mordecai has his name listed down in the king's book as a man who saved the king's life. But there is a notable admission at the end of this chapter. There is no mention that Mordecai receives any reward. There is no mention of any recognition for what he has done. And this is rather unusual. The acts of loyalty were usually rewarded immediately, were rewarded generously by the Persian kings. This man had just saved the king's life. But Mordecai was overlooked. There was no reward. There was no recognition, despite the fact he saved this man's life. And what makes this even worse is in the first verse of chapter 3, it reveals to us that Haman receives this promotion. Now, to be forgotten about is one thing, 
But then to see someone else promoted after the admirable deed that you perform, this is rather tough. Perhaps Mordecai thought, it's not fair. Now you can see the point of my introduction. Mordecai should have been rewarded. He should have received recognition, yet he did not at this time. And how easy it would have been to get bitter and angry and complain, crying, it's not fair. You know, perhaps we can relate to this situation. There has been times in our lives, maybe even right now, where we have been treated unfairly. We have done what is right and not received the recognition we deserve. We have helped someone greatly yet received no reward. We've been denied the promotion despite our superior work ethic. There are many times in our lives when we, like Mordecai, do not receive the recognition and the reward from men despite our effort, faithfulness, self-sacrifice. And we may be tempted to think it's not fair and we may well be within our rights. But when we are faced with situations like this, times where we deserve honour, where we deserve reward, where we deserve recognition but are neglected, we would do well to remember these two things. And this is what I'll close with. Number one, God rewards. God rewards. Now we believe in a God who sees all things. We would do well to remember that God sees all things that we do. Even when we do not receive the reward, the recognition, the praise of men, even if we deserve it, God has seen everything that went on. And God promises that we will reap what we sow. We will be rewarded if that's what we deserve, but we must remember that this will happen in God's timing. And he chooses the reward, and his timing and his reward is always the best. Now, Mordecai, in this situation, he ended up being rewarded in God's timing. And how much greater was that reward and recognition? We must allow God to determine the reward and the recognition along with the timing. His timing will be the best. His reward will be the greatest. One commentator said, Our good works are like seeds that are planted by faith, and the fruits don't always appear immediately, but God's timing is always perfect. And he sees to it that no good deed is ever wasted. Beloved, be encouraged. God will reward. It will never be unfair with God, but we must wait for his timing. And the second thing we must remember is to give recognition. To give recognition. You know, as human beings, we love to be recognized. And we tend to get down when we do not get recognized. Yet how often do we ourselves forget to recognize, forget to reward, forget to give honor to those who deserve it? You know, I wonder how many times, even in this week, we have been negligent in our daily relationships in this area. We have not given honor and recognition where it is due. Now, we would do well to practice this simple principle in our lives. We like to receive it, so we too should give it. But of an even greater importance, when we are complaining that it's not fair, that we are not being recognized, that we are not being given the honor we deserve, 
know, pose the question to ourselves, am I giving Christ the honour and recognition that he deserves? How much greater recognition and honour does he deserve for what he has done for you and me? Yet how often, beloved, we fail miserably in this area. We are so selfish and quick to get upset when we do not receive the honour and recognition to deserve, that we deserve. We are quick to declare it's not fair. But realistically, if there's anyone who can declare it's not fair, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. But how often we fail to give our Lord and Saviour the honour and recognition that belongs to him. And that truly is not fair. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Old Testament, Lord, that these things were written aforetime for our learning. And I do pray that we can take something away from this story tonight to help us in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.